Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. So today, we'll be discussing a nature paper published in 2019 with the title Large Teams Develop and Small Teams Disrupt Science and Technology by Ling Fei Wu, Dashun Wang, and James Evans. We have the first author, Ling Fei Wu, in our virtual studio to talk about it. Ling is a computational social scientist with research interests in the future of research, education, and employment in an AI economy. He received his PhD in communication from the City University of Hong Kong in 2013 and is currently a postdoc at the Department of Sociology at the University of Chicago. Ling is now in the job market for an assistant professor position in computational social science. So welcome to the program. Thank you, Wally and Matt. So what's the backstory for this work? What got you interested in studying the team size and how it relates to disruption? Yeah, first of all, thank you, Wally and Matt, for inviting me to this. I... I really enjoy this kind of uh, more like laid back, relaxing vibe with uh, to talk about the stories behind research. And uh, we we push a blog about the story behind research in nature community. But I'm definitely happy to share more. So it was like in 2016, and I was visiting Centafe Institute. That's a great place with a lot of people talking about reading idea about a complex system and this and that. And I met uh, James Evans there. Uh, at first, we would just start from some very rough and big, uh, vague ideas about how natural language and uh, artificial language constrain our thinking. And then we gradually talk about all these kind of things that constrain the production of knowledge. You know, like, and then, like, at some point, we're talking about teams, because, like, you can un- understand teams, organizations, institutions, they are kind of uh, social language that constrain our thinking. For example, like, in Japanese, there are many, many unique characters to talk about different kind of fish. So we observe this kind of thing that uh, if each different, like, the language can shape our thinking dramatically, and we will interesting idea whether like social language which is like our organization social network structure all these kind of things does it also shapes how we think and what we really know and that's kind of a starting point and that's also the time that uh, my collaborator james and Dustin they throw out the idea about small they feel small teams are kind of more like move faster in the knowledge space and we kind of just combine all these things and start the project. That's very interesting. Have you explored different hypotheses before you stumble upon this one, which ended up being such a meaningful hypothesis to test? Because sometimes like, I wonder if something like this comes to light because people had a moment of inspiration or it's a sequence of failure and then results in a successful finding. No, this is totally... Yeah, I, I feel you and... Uh, like anyone who did this kind of long-term project or even just publish a small paper, or I assume everyone like will experience the same fluctuate, bumpy road journey. Like sometimes you are so exciting about new ideas. Sometimes then you just feel that it's a, a lot about the field and the try it again. So in our blog, I show the image. There are like in total almost 1,800 emails I sent to my collaborator James and Dustin over these three years, and that kind of is a data visualization on how and when things go. To, uh, like we we got a lot of heat, 
and need to take care of all these kind of issues. Every time we kind of got stuck, we try to bring our, the team back to the original idea, which is measure disruptive innovation and try to associate with some very fundamental measurements of social organization like team size. We were also lucky in the early stage, we already observed the signal. And then 80% of work is more like to test the robustness of this pattern. Yeah, it's not easy to find the right signal and find it consistently across different streams of data. So could you, for the audience, help us understand what kind of metric you use to define disruption? Yeah, so the whole cornerstone, the paper is disruption. And technically, it basically just measures to what extent new idea eclipses or overshadows the past ideas. So you just imagine like an expanding universe of knowledge. And each idea or each paper, for example, it could be a paper, a pattern, or software. Every idea has to build up on previous ideas. But the people constantly compare you. Like There's a famous quote, all this great work was just like uh, because you stand on the giant shoulder. Right? So the thing is that people constantly, this, this quote uh, captured this kind of uh, scenario that the followers or the future observers constantly compare your work against the work you build on. And that's kind of the original idea of disruption. And I have to note that this we think of different versions of disruption, but in our paper, we use the original version proposed by Russell and Owen Smith, which is a very well-defined and easy-to-operate definition in citation networks. Yeah, could you explain that metric? I think it's an interesting one to you to think about. Yeah, so basically, uh, if allowed us to go a little bit into details, it would be like if you have a paper and you have, for example, three uh, reference in this paper, and then we will collect all the future papers which either cite this paper or its reference or both. And then it becomes a pool and then we calculate the fraction of three types of papers in this pool. The first type is the paper that only cites the focal paper. The second type is the paper that cites both the focal paper and the reference. And the third one is the one only cites the reference. And then the eventually the disruption will be the probability or the fraction of the first type, which only cites the focal paper, minus the second type which is cite both the focal paper and the reference. Because the probability of fraction is between 0 and 1, and these forms measure between negative 1 and 1. When it's 1, it means like all the future papers only cite you, but not your reference. So you are very, very disruptive, or you totally eclipse or overshadows the narrative. The future attention all go to you, not your reference. And when it's negative 1, it's the reverse. Yes, so uh, when I read the metric as described in the paper, one question I had in my mind is, what if there is one paper that I cite in my paper, which tends to be cited in pretty much all papers that are written in this area for that year, okay? So something that's very influential, everyone is using it. If I understand the metric correctly, then this means the majority of papers in this pool that you're using to compute the metric will be only citing that other paper, not the focal paper which results in only a small margin for you to go on the disruption scale. Yeah, you are actually talking about a very typical scenario. It's like citing classics, those popular papers. Back to our metaphor about Eclipse. 
We can just imagine the eclipse of sun or moon against eclipsing a little star. It's way easier to overshadow or eclipse a little star far from you and less visible than eclipse the sun or moon. And that is true that for a majority of people in our data set, the disruption is small. But that's also a very nice feature of the measure that allows us to highlight those successfully eclipse previous ideas. And uh, of course, we can give, like, if we want to talk about a richer story, for example, people may think that would be a natural foreign question would be if your reference is less popular, it's easier to eclipse it then, right? So in our figure, we try this and we uh, kind of uh, separate paper by their impacts. Generally, paper impacts in figure three, it's the impact controlled by impact of focal paper. In, in our extent data figures, we also control the impact of reference and try to see whether our story still holds across different groups. Either they try to eclipse the sun or just a little star. Yeah, I guess one interesting way to think about this is uh, about some metric that you're trying to design is like, what are the what are the extremes and are there failure cases on the extremes? One way to maximize this metric is to not cite anyone in my papers, right? True. If you don't have a reference, uh, but the thing is like in our analysis, we actually job this kind of, if you don't have an analysis, because like by default, yeah, the disruption will be one, uh, but it's a kind of unfair, so we jump there. Right, and if I don't go quite that extreme, but but still like the fewer papers that I cite, the better I'm going to do on this metric, kind of a priori, right? Yeah, so this is a really nice point. It actually brings us back to the following up thinking about this paper. So at first, we start from measuring disruption and associate that with the team size at first. But then we want to talk about a richer story and that's when the tree metaphor comes in the picture so we imagine a paper or uh, any kind of teamwork like pattern or software could be a tree which roots uh, go deep into the past that is the its reference and also grow the citation or impact into the future so it's a tree unfold in time uh, immediately that comes uh, with the metaphor will be the assumption that if you have a deeper roots, you know, you go very, very deep to the past, that would be more disruptive because the follower would typically prefer to just follow you rather than follow your all these like a deep, older reference. And another consequence is if you try to build your work on the less popular, like you try to discover these hidden, the forgotten notes and ideas in history, and it will also make you more disruptive because you are packing uh, the forgotten ideas and that future citation will tend to build on you but not going through the same effort you have been going through. We see a lot of things can comes in the picture when we have the tree. We, we kind of see small things as like remembering the past and rediscovering the invisible and forgotten ideas and package together nicely and pass it to future and future citation just like uh, build more on this and while the whereas the big things are doing the reverse yeah i really liked the tree visualizations that i saw in your paper i'd encourage any listeners that have heard about this work and haven't seen those figures to go look at them because they're they're pretty i liked it a lot thank you i uh, appreciate it and i probably spend too much time on this like uh, it, at some point because the project was very wrong I have to have some fun during this boring process of uh, processing huge amount of data. So I try to be a little bit arty, but uh, that could also be very destructive and adaptive 
it's not a very efficient way of working. Right. Uh, so we didn't actually talk about the central finding of the paper that much. So the main finding here is that smaller teams tend to be uh, to do more disruptive work. Yeah. Could you tell us a little more about how did you reach this conclusion? What kind of data you used? What observations you've seen in the data? So the main idea we found is like across these three data sets of research paper over 115 years of 44 million papers and also patterns, U.S. patterns for 40 years over half million and also 18 million software in three uh, years. We all observe this very robust association between team size and disruption in the sense that small teams are more disruptive. So that's kind of like the main finding of the paper. And most of the paper is its nature, and they have really have a high expectation on the robustness of the patterns. So we spend a lot of time to develop all these kind of controls. Like for Web of Science paper, we have eight controls. We have we control impact, field, author, type of paper, topic, time period, time window, journal. And for the patterns, we control the applicants, like is it like from big company or from small company? We control industry, what kind of industry you're from, does it matter? And then for the software, we control whether it's a small project or it's a large project measured by the code size. And also we control the language, like what kind of language you are using. And through all these kind of robustness tests, we still see the same pattern, no matter how much you slice the data set into small pieces. So that's when we build up our confidence. And we develop all these kind of tests also through the help, very like, very uh, constructive comments from the reviewers. They have a new aspect and like every round of the back and forth is like, they, they, they were like, oh, have you saw this? Have you checked that to do the robustness test? Uh, but as we mentioned a little bit earlier, the really this paper it's uh, for me it's more like uh, yeah we we kind of have the most uh, solid results in the paper. But I hope that paper is just a beginning of a conversation and a lot of way more interesting thinking about why small and large things are so fundamentally different, and uh, what is the process of knowledge discovery, rediscovery, and the production. And that I will feel like very happy to for any of these kind of conversations. Yeah. So I was wondering, how would you translate the findings that you had in the paper into practical advice for researchers? I've always been very liberal about who to collaborate with. If another researcher is interested in the work I'm doing and they have something to contribute, that's great. But it seems like your findings suggest I should be more careful, uh, try to avoid expanding the team size by doing more things on my own. Uh, yeah, so there are definitely some lessons we can take out and some are more obvious than others. For the most applied consequence, we analyze how does this association relate to or affect the science policy because basically we motivate scientists by two things. One, we give them a prize. Two, we give them money. Right? Um, so we analyze what is the Nobel Prize over 100 years related to this and we found Nobel Prize uh, reward disproportionately uh, to small and disruptive teams, which to our perspective is a good thing because these are teams are typically very innovative and disruptive and create new directions. But we also uh, collect data and analyze how, so we want to know like how about the research that founded by the main government agencies around the world. So we analyze data across um, almost half a million papers that found Founded by these five 
main government agencies, including uh, Nature Nature Science Foundation in U.S. and also similar uh, foundation in China, in German, in European, in Japan. And we consistently found that the founded research actually less disrupt. It's more like uh, more like large things and developing research are founded. And also more interestingly, in the general population, small things are more disruptive. But the, in the founded research, we observe that small things are actually more conservative or more developing. So many theory can come out of that. So confirming the theory goes beyond this paper. But uh, one possibility is because of the existing funding environment, people try to be more conservative and try to, to secure their ideas before they submit a proposal. So that brings us to the question, like, what is the best way to find the scientists? And also back to your question about our own research rather than just the policy, I think it's a, it's a kind of a trade-off. And also it's relevant to like different circles of career and also different circles of life. Uh, no, I mean like the, of the idea. Um, just like you have, we have startups, we also have giant companies in Silicon Valley. It's the same logic going on in science. We have small teams that are taking all these kind of risks, who got nothing to lose, not much to lose, but we also have large teams that you take a lot of resource, but that also means you need to pay the bill. So it, I think it's a trade-off between these kind of modes. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it still like doesn't completely explain how, as a researcher, who's most interested in doing disruptive work, yeah, sorry. I, I think that definitely means that if you want to be disruptive, you need to have a small team. That I think that signal is uh, kind of clear, like um, and sounded. Of course, there's a chance, but uh, with small team, you have a higher chance to disrupt. Yeah, I guess another thing to keep in mind here is what kind of team size are we talking about? What is large versus small in this context? True, that's a very nice uh, perspective. So that also relate relate to. One result in our paper, which is the figure two, we observe robustness of this team size and disruption across fields. And uh, we do observe that on average, some fields are harder to disrupt than other fields. For example, physics is a field that very hard to disrupt. And uh, social science and biology are relatively easier to disrupt. And my personal interpretation on this is like, science is a complex system it includes both kind of like more like artificial knowledge and also natural knowledge. So when we're doing physics, we are, it's, it's kind of like we can, it's debatable. Uh, you, you can have alternative theories on how universe runs, but uh, you don't have much uh, degree of freedom as much as like uh, in sociology or like other fields like computer science or something. It's more like um, we human beings, we create this kind of understanding and we build we build logic, we build all of this. So I would say that more natural knowledge is harder to disrupt. And to disrupt this kind of knowledge, you need an even smaller team. That's interesting. Like one, uh, this is me just speculating here. Mm -hmm. I, I sure. have not dug into this data at all. Um, but I've been thinking recently about how we do science in computer science versus in, say, physics, yeah. um, where, or even biology. In a lot of these places, you need to get a lot of funding up front to build a machine or to exactly. buy lab rats or whatever, um, get chemicals to run an experiment. And this, this costs a lot of money. It requires a big team. There is this dichotomy between like the person who 
proposes a theory that maybe eventually people think is good and good enough to verify experimentally, and then someone, some big team, does the verification. And so, like, thinking about these other kinds of scientific fields, this makes a lot of sense to me. Exactly. In computer science, I think we do this very differently because it's just any grad student can write code to run whatever experiment they want. This is changing a little bit as, as compute is getting more expensive with these deep neural networks, but it's just very different. We have very much smaller teams in general in computer science than you see in a lot of these like CERN papers or whatever, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree with this. And uh, that will bring us to a very interesting conversation on like what, what do we mean by fields and what is the like, artificial knowledge and what is the natural knowledge. And uh, for the paper itself, we observe that uh, across all these fields, small things are on average, more likely to be disruptive than large teams. But definitely, as uh, Matt mentioned, we have different fields and they have different practice. And in computer science, I would argue we still have very small teams. Uh, my favorite paper by Turing, uh, that was uh, like only himself. And also some of like heroes uh, like Van Neumann and Stephen Wolfram, these kind of great brains, they basically work by themselves. But of course, we some fields are more engineering than other fields. And in these kind of more applied engineering fields, when we talk about small teams, we need to be careful, like, what, how small is the small team? Like, at least we need to, in this kind of applied engineering fields, to be creative, you, you that's a, like a bottom line of cost, right? Like, you need to have GPU, you have the machine running for you, and, and then you can talk about how creative you are. Then most of people cannot just work with papers and pencil like theoretical physics. Right, and I, I would like to note that in one of your figures, in figure 3b, you have a different line showing the disruption percentiles for uh, different team sizes, mm -hmm. and it's broken by the fields. And as far as I can tell from the graph, computer science and engineering, the, the disruption is actually not going down as the team size expands. You could tell me if I'm reading this wrong. Yeah, as we mentioned in the paper, the main reason I will argue is because we were using web of science data in terms of journal articles. And we know engineering and the computer science are not really value a journal article the most. The top conference is the main outlet of these ideas and research. So I think that could be uh, influential. But also the thing we just discussed, like different field has different practices that will also, like, I, I will, it probably also amplified what we just saw. But in the extent data, uh, there's a extent data in which we separate them by journals. And that for that, the journal separation, we put out engineer and uh, computer science journals. And within a single journal, we still see uh, small teams more disruptive patterns. Could you tell us a little more about difference uh, in reference patterns? So you talked about reference popularity as opposed to age. I was wondering if you have any insights on why is it the case that Sometimes the larger team sizes result in more citations. It still build up. The intuition still comes from the universe and the star eclipse metaphor. So the first thing we observe is that small teams are more disruptive. But then in that metaphor, we kind of connect the, these two different ideas about the future and the past. Right. So you are more disruptive. Typical means you are building up on the reference that is less visible or less popular and earlier. And that immediately gives the assumption that if small teams are more disruptive, would it because like small teams are actually align themselves with the like earlier stars and less visible stars? 
and then we test the data and found that this is actually a robust pattern. And this is like also quite understandable if we think of our daily life and practice in academia. If you have a large team, you are really socially constrained. So this is another idea that comes with the paper we haven't presented in the paper, but we kind of have idea that we have two space. One is social space and one is knowledge space. And when you have, uh, I would like to quote from James March, uh, one of my favorite scholars, saying that linkage and, and power and autonomy, that it doesn't come along the same way. If you have power, you have to rely on linkage, and linkage destroy your autonomy. So basically, if you have a large uh, social space, you are powerful, you are quite embedded in the power structure in terms of uh, collaboration network, in terms of all these like, uh, institutional leaks you are kind of constrained because you have the response to what other people think all the day. Like, there, there are tons of things you need to maintain. But then, like, if you are kind of on the edge and disconnected and pretty much, uh, if we pick, make it a little bit personal, lonely, then you kind of have a huge autonomy. You can move easily in the idea space. So if you are small in social space, you're probably large in idea space. That's a kind of another association we try to draw behind the paper. But this doesn't still explain the more citations that larger team size gets. Yeah, I feel it's relevant because like, if you have a large team, you have to chase what's going on. Like, you have to harvest the mature market of attention. Like, you have to do what other people are doing because you are taking a lot of money, you are taking a lot of resources, you need to be responsible, and you have to chase for the flow, you know, the chain. You are, it's too risky to deviate too much from the, the mainstream of science. It's just too risky. It's not like uh, large teams guys are irresponsible. No, they are got stuck and they got constrained because they are so responsible for the results. So they have to keep up with the mainstream and cite the popular papers, cite the recent papers that helps them secure their position in the mainstream, but they also distance them from the ori- origins of innovation. Yeah, that makes sense. It, to some extent, it's like maybe subconsciously gaming the metric of where well, you want to get more citations by doing the things that are popular. Yeah, and that's how we summarize our story by saying that bring in the dimension of remembering and forgetting. Like to me, like small things are like remembering earlier and less visible ideas and pack them. But large things, when they are chasing the hotspot, when they are chasing the mainstream, they kind of helping the hurting effect, helping the entire science community to forget all these little, little people, these little ideas. And I would like to argue that those who remember history will be remembered long. I mean, if they ever be remembered, you know, of course, that's risky. But those who forget history will be forget soon. Yeah. Okay. So there is of other factors that you mentioned in the paper and you mentioned uh, briefly before that you also controlled for. I was wondering if you would like to talk about any ones, any factors that also correlated strongly with disruption. Yeah, we control many um Factors and some factors are very interesting. One factor is we mentioned for the field. So there are like more natural knowledge field and artificial knowledge field, if we may put it that way. And another thing is, as we show in the first figure, we control for the reviewers. So we the way we do it is like we pull out the titles and we take the journals annual. The keywords annual and review. So they are pretty much like purely review journals, and we take this pool of paper. And compare it against the population. We found that these reviewer, at least reviewing papers, are indeed more developing because there's it's less about original idea. 
and those papers revealed by then are more disruptive. They are like kind of on different sides of the story. And another another thing we did, which is very fun and relevant more to the NLP community, is like we try to compare the keywords and the the chance of observing different keywords. As we also present in the Figure One, we have these different kind of keywords. And if one keyword is we we have, we separate paper into two groups, the developing group and disrupting group, and if a keyword shows up with a way higher chance in one group against another, then we pick it up, and it's a it's a fun way to play around with the data and see whether scientists are honest and is whether it's possible for them to be honest. So we observe that when people claim in their title as about stabilizing or like confirm. Or like this kind of work, they are more like de developing. And when they claim that uh, this is like bring new knowledge into the existing body, they are more disruptive. It's interesting to associate the language scientists are using with uh, the impact and consequence of whether they are disruptive or not. There are one more thing I would like to mention. We didn't present it in paper limited by the space. We actually systematically measure the KL divergence between the abstract and title of a paper against all the abstract and the pa、uh, title of its reference paper, and see whether a paper is measured by citation as more disruptive. They are also more innovative in terms of that they have a higher KL divergence between these two、uh, texts, and turns out they are pretty consistent. So scientists are talking about new things, new ideas, new words, and then. The entire community can pick them up, so it's kind of a self-report language versus peer evaluation. Another factor that I thought was very interesting is、uh, looking at different time periods. I'm looking at Figure Three C,、uh, the extended data figure, and I'm seeing that as time goes by, papers tend to be less disruptive over time, which kind of like、uh, coincides with my intuition that like I don't know we have more papers now. Like the bar to publication seems to be lower than it used to be 20 years ago. I'm not entirely sure this is true,、uh, but this has been my intuition. That's a good intuition. And one thing we didn't have opportunity to unfold in the paper is it's the temporal evolution of the dis disruption measure. Just like citation is evolved over time, disruption also. But the disruption has a very interesting、uh, pattern. Everyone starts from the same point because at first you don't really have many citations, and there's no dramatical difference between different groups. And over time, you kind of observe that small things. That, that well, I call that、uh, two ways to success. We call these papers cited by another paper the concept of sleeping beauty. There are a lot of sleeping beauties in、uh, in history, right? Like for example, Einstein's paper on the gravity、uh, gravitational. A wave is been sleeping for 100 years, and all of a sudden it bursts. And for all these papers, they eventually accumulate a lot of、uh, citation. Sooner or later, we observe that small things, more like they became hit papers by being disruptive, and small things became hit papers by being developmental. Again, we see the like social language and the organization concern here. They have advantages versus disadvantages for small things. A good strategy is to maximize its capacity to seek for risky ideas and、uh, implement that. Whereas for large things, is like the best strategy probably for them is to develop existing ideas. So not it's not just like for the on average, it's a tendency for all things to do that. But also for the top five or like top one best things who survive in time, 
that's actually the strategy they use. So I feel that's relevant to what you are saying about like uh, disruption over uh, evolve over time because on average the citation will stabilize, right? People will forget about you, but the disruption will diverge. If you are disruptive, and you probably will accumulate be more disrupt- disruptive because it's always easier to follow you than follow your reference. I think what you're telling me is that it's not necessarily the case that more recent work is less disruptive in general. In, in on average. It may be a side effect of uh, how we measure disruption. You are totally right because, like the more recent work, the, so disruption is like think about the tree again. It it takes time to grow. So recent work, it doesn't really have much time, like longer time window enough to grow. If you have longer years, it's like a classic emerge over time, right? We don't we don't talk about classic like what's the recent year classic, but if we talk about fifties, sixties. It just takes time to, as a witness, to see this class. Sure, but you can still control for this by only considering the next, the following 10 years when you're doing the analysis. Yeah, we control both. So uh, one thing we control is the time period. So we separate paper into different cohorts in different decades and see whether the pattern holds. The others, we control the time windows from five years uh, for all papers and for one cohort paper. We change the window size whether we calculate disruption within five years, within 10 years, within 20 years, all the way within 50 years. We are happy to see that the result is pretty robust. Uh, these are all in the extent data figures. All right. Are there any other thoughts that you'd like to share about this work? I'd like to end with another question, but uh, first I wanted to give you a chance to... Uh... I kind of I have a feeling what's coming for the last question. So I hope this is like... Um, because we... We have been traveling, I have been traveling around and uh, my training is in social science and uh, I'm, I really like data science and I do a lot of data work and programming. So I kind of trans, like uh, try to translate ideas across communities a lot. Like uh, I also publish on physical journals, so physics community, computer science community and a social science community. And I keep thinking, what is the best research? This is, of course, is a very debatable, big topic. But my personal feeling is like, one of the people I love the most is from computer science community. It's called No Country for All Members. And that's from the, a group led by Dan Jurafsky. And the first author is Christian. He was in Stanford when he wrote this paper. That paper basically tried to analyze a beer review community and demonstrate how people get stuck in the past. Like whenever they get in the community and the, the community start to use some kind of language and they get stuck with that language, it, they didn't evolve until the entire community just move forward and use different language to talk about the same thing. And these kind of things made me feel more like relatable. I kind of like this kind of research that it's very solid and it's, the, the pattern is robust. But it's not just, you know, it's not just like on every typical computer science community. It touches the humanity and it kind of helps us reflect and rethink what is humanity and what humanity, how humanity will be tested, will be even crashed will be rebuilt in a society with more and more machine intelligence. So that's a, that's kind of a general thing I would like to pursue, and I re- welcome more comments, ideas on this. I, I feel this is a very urgent and important and essential topic to study. When we talk about machines, what are we talking about? We are actually talking about humans, and what, what is humanity? Yeah, thank you for sharing this. To end on a humorous note, I know that you hosted a podcast called Lugo, in which you encourage researchers to share awkward moments, uh, the experience of their life. <laughs> so it's only fair that we ask you to share some of the awkward moments that you experienced while working on this project. Uh, there are a lot. 
And one of the most awkward moments, probably the when the paper was rejected by science. <laughs> we submitted this to science at first, and uh, they are like totally three years. And the second year, we already did most of primary research, and we submitted to science. And they have we went through many rounds of rebuttal, and uh, the community in science kind of divided a little bit. Like people have very different ideas. So comes back to the humanity side of the note earlier, like. Uh, uh, I'm also reading uh, another book uh, that I would like to recommend. It's uh, it's called Science in Action by the anthropologist uh, from uh, France, uh, Latour Bruno, and uh, I like the idea presented in the paper in the book that uh, the development of science is like we try to dump, contribute, and dump more of this our local calculation. You know, going on in our lab, in our brain, in our mind to those um, centers of calculation. You know, it becomes repository of human intelligence, it becomes machine intelligence. It, it goes into a center and move forward to next generation with us. But uh, we are all like vulnerable human beings. And uh, I remember when the, we were rejected, I, reje- I was rejected by science. That was a very, um, very, very like uh, kind of challenging moment, tough times. This is definitely uh, will be a career defining paper for me. And also an, uh, another thing relevant to that is that it amplifies my identity crisis. Uh, that's also one of the reasons I spent some time to host the podcast uh, for a while. I was sitting in my office, and uh, sorry for putting this in a very dark way, but this is really I, what I thought. I was thinking, what if I just get on this, get out of this office and got hit by a car? What will happen? Of course, people will be very sad. And you guess what will happen? The university will hire a new Postdoc, maybe from China, maybe from somewhere. So that's the <laughs> that's the that's the how the science works. You know, like the machine, the power, the social structure. It works. It moves forward without with or without you. And that made me feel like complicated. You know, like sad and like what what can I contribute? What what is my real identity? So I think most of my awkward and challenging moments comes from keep rethinking who am I and the what uh, what is how is how. How important is the things research I'm doing, and how would that help me or help other people rediscover their identity rather than just like make a big, build a bigger, stronger machine? Yeah, that's a, a great way to end this conversation. Thank you so much. That was a fun conversation to have. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again for Wally and Matt for inviting me. Thank you.